0: From the state capitol, WFSU Public Media brings you Capital Report. Activists and Democrats are pushing back on a DeSantis administration push to block gender-affirming care for transgender kids.
1: If it was not for my son having life-saving care 12 years ago, I'm not sure if he actually wouldn't be here.
0: Also this week, Florida Democrats still trying to figure out how to bounce back from the drubbing the party's candidates took in the 2020 election, and the leadership competition is heating up.
2: I am somebody that is very proud that we're gonna bring together those legislators
3: and the donors and the grassroots.
0: We'll also find that most Florida kids get health care coverage from something other than traditional private insurance, and we'll watch recovered vanities return to the wild. I'm Tom Flanagan, and this is Capitol Report. Activists and Democratic lawmakers are pushing back after two Florida medical boards voted to move forward with state rules banning gender-affirming care for transgender kids. The boards also removed an exception for research and clinical trials. Regan McCarthy reports the decision has been met with frustration and anger.
1: After little deliberation or debate among members, both boards of medicine voted in a recent hearing to move forward with a ban on gender-affirming care for minors, including banning puberty blockers. The groups also removed a provision that allowed an exception for research. Florida Department of Health lawyer John Wilson requested that change.
4: These procedures are either safe or they are not. And I submit to you that the boards have both separately and jointly answered that question. But I would further submit to you that the exception seeks to escape the conclusion rather than embrace it.
1: Members of the public called the move hypocritical, saying it doesn't make sense to remove the opportunity for research when board members pointed to what they see as a lack of research for their decision. Simone Chris is director of the Transgender Rights Initiative at the Southern Legal Council. She says decades of research shows treatment for gender dysphoria is safe, effective, and medically necessary. And adds there's no need for Florida to create these rules because there's already a widely accepted standard of care for transgender teens. Chris sees the DeSantis administration's push for the rules as fear-based and politically motivated.
3: I am ashamed that the rest of the
1: country and the world
3: is watching while those in positions of power who are entrusted to protect our rights, our health, our well-being, are weaponizing that power against the transgender community for political gain. And doing so under the guise of protecting children is particularly insidious, given that we know, based on the overwhelming weight of evidence and science, that access to treatment for gender dysphoria is safe, effective, and medically necessary. And stripping children in Florida of access to that care harms them. It in no way protects
1: them. Moments after the board members voted, the meeting turned to chaos. The board filed out of the room even as members of the public begged for more time to have their voices heard.
3: Speak up
1: in here three times. This is the third time I came. I, a 10-hour day. The pleas turned to anger, chance, and resolve as a wall of police formed in the front of the room and slowly began forcing the audience toward the back and out through the door. Outside, officers blocked the entrance, funneling members of the public toward the parking lot on one side and a waiting bus on the other. Anna Coltis embraced her transgender son before boarding the bus. She spoke during the meeting. Why am I here? I'm here because I'm trying to pay it forward. If it was not for my son having life-saving care 12 years ago... I'm not sure if he actually wouldn't be here because I think we were tuned in enough to that aspect of the anxiety and suicide. But I do not think that he would be the accomplished, loving, contributing member of society that he is without the care he got. Coldas's husband, Kirk Hobson Garcia, spoke as well. He says when their son was eight years old, he told his parents he knew he was in the wrong body and he'd been thinking about suicide. What if it was your child what
4: would you do? I know I will do anything to save him,
5: to make him a better person. I cannot believe God going to do this to this group of people. It's aching me. It's hurting me. Oh my gosh,
4: how could you do this?
5: I'm wrong.
1: Oh my gosh. Florida Democrats are rallying around the cause. Orlando Democratic Representative Anna Escamani spoke at the meeting. She called out the validity of the data the board used for its decision making, and Tampa Democratic Representative Fintress Driscoll later told reporters she sees the move as the Desantis administration's latest attack on vulnerable Floridians.
6: You know, I'm very proud of our young people who are bravely coming together to resist these hateful attacks on the trans community. Um, But at a time when we have so many pressing issues to deal with, it's astonishing to me that our governor would choose to use his power and his administration to attack these kids.
1: The Florida Southern Legal Council says it plans to file a lawsuit to fight the state rules. I'm Regan McCarthy.
0: The last few months have been especially rough for Florida Democrats. They lost midterm races up and down the ballot in November, even as the party's candidates performed better in other states. Then former state party chair Manny Diaz stepped down after the holidays. Democrats will choose his replacement later this month. And as Valerie Crowder reports, the party's leaders are trying to take a different approach to rebuilding.
3: That began Thursday night with the first-ever debate for state party chair. It was put on by the state's Black Legislative Caucus at a church in Tallahassee. Tampa Representative Diane Hart says the state of Florida is at stake in the election for party chair. Never has ever been a debate, but I think it's important that people get to hear what the candidates are proposing they will do to help us rebuild this party. Democrats in Florida haven't seen significant wins in decades. The party's last governor was Lawton Childs, who was elected in 1994. In November, the party lost statewide races for governor, state cabinet positions, and U.S. Senate. Democrats also lost state legislative seats, giving Republicans a supermajority in the House and Senate. We must not lose another seat in this state. Hart says that starts with electing the right person to lead the party. They have got to be able to raise lots of money. They've got to be able to listen to all of the people, black, brown, Hispanic, everybody. They've got to have their ear to the ground. They also have to have a lot of people around them that they can trust to help them make solid, good decisions. That's going to be critically important, no matter who this chair is. Leon County Democratic Party Chair Ryan Ray says he hasn't made up his mind yet about who he'll support, but he wants to make sure that whoever leads the state party is answering to everyday Democrats, not special interests.
7: I'm looking for someone
8: who can tell me convincingly that they're going to be independent from that consultant class that gets rich off losing cycle after cycle and I think pollutes the democratic brand and the democratic message.
3: Four candidates are vying for state party chair. Former state agriculture commissioner Nikki Fried, who lost her party's primary for governor last year, announced her candidacy a few days before the debate. This is not going to be an easy journey, but we're going to need to all roll up our sleeves, go into our communities, work together, make sure that every aspect of our state is covered making sure that we're fielding candidates in all the races, making sure we're not leaving the panhandle out, making sure that we're including all of our different factions of our state and truly be a big tent party. Former state Senator Annette Tadeo is also running for state party chair. She has endorsements from Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who previously served as head of the Democratic National Committee and other Democratic members of Congress, as well as some of the party's legislative leaders.
2: I am somebody that is very proud that we're going to bring together those legislators and the donors and the grassroots, and we are going to turn this state blue. Is it going to be overnight? Heck no. It's going to be a long-term plan, like I said.
3: Broward County Democratic Executive Committee Chair Rick Hoy is also running to lead the state party. He says he's the person the party needs to reach to win.
4: I am a black US history teacher in Florida. I'm a unionist. I'm under attack in every way possible in the state.
3: The state party's Progressive Caucus leader, Carolina Ampudia of West Palm Beach, is also running for state party chair. She's also a member of the Labor Caucus, and she says she believes the party can do things differently. I think that I am the choice for this because I'm a reformer through and through, who has experience organizing inside of the state in various locations. Democrats will choose their next leader at the party's state executive committee meeting later this month. Republicans are set to select their party chair this weekend. I'm Valerie Crowder.
0: Coming up on Capitol Report, Florida marks the fifth anniversary of a terrible tragedy, the massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School.
8: Nothing we do will bring back our loved ones. Nothing that, this is a work of passion. This is a
0: work of hope. Who provides health care coverage for most Florida kids? We'll give you a hint, it's not private health insurance.
6: Two thirds of Florida's children are getting their health insurance through Medicaid and CHIP, which in Florida is called Healthy Kids.
0: You've probably heard of microfibers, but how about micro forests? It seems something that even kids find exciting.
3: Let's see, do we need to put some more dirt in here? What do you think? Yeah. All right,
4: we'll use some native soil as well.
0: And after so much bad news about Florida's manatees for so long, there may be a glimmer of light on the horizon.
3: It's been a very tough couple years for the field biologists being out there. We've seen a lot of things that are really sad Depressing. It's
0: heart The Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School Public Safety Commission was established just a few weeks after the Parkland shooting in 2018. It was tasked with finding out what went wrong and how to prevent future school shootings. WLRN's Gerard Albert III has this update as Tuesday of this week was the fifth anniversary of the mass shooting
4: then-Governor Rick Scott and leaders of the Florida legislature appointed the commission members, law enforcement officers, educators, state lawmakers, and parents of kids who died. Max Schachter was one of them. His son, Alex, died in the shooting.
7: That's what we need to do to protect our children. And until we do that, kids will continue to die in classrooms. Either stop the murderer or his bullets. Our goal here today is to stop the killing before it starts. It's been it's been hard, you know, because every every meeting I had to relive Alex being murdered all over again. It's been frustrating because of the ineptitude and the failures in Broward County. And and it's been it's been positive in that you know, we've seen some positive change come out of this horrible tragedy all in Alex's name and and the other 16 victims.
4: Ryan Petty was the other parent appointed to the commission. His daughter, Elena, was murdered at the high school.
8: Nothing we do will bring back our loved ones. Nothing that this is a work of passion. This is a work of hope that what we had to experience won't happen to any other families.
4: I spoke with Petty about his work on the commission. I can't imagine what was going through your mind after the shooting. How did it come to be that Governor Scott appointed you to the commission?
8: He told me he wanted, he didn't ever want this to happen again in Florida. And um, I couldn't think of a better way to honor my daughter. I was still reeling from the lost. Uh, I still am reeling from the lost. But the opportunity to honor her and the person that she was and was becoming um, was something I knew I needed to be a part of.
4: This was something that was new to you, so I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts were going in.
8: Initially, I was doubtful as to the impact the commission could have because I've seen so many of these types of tragedies around the country where a commission is impaneled, some hearings are held, and nothing is really done. And I couldn't have been more wrong.
4: The commission has done so much in the effort to improve school safety in Florida including pushing for statewide behavioral threat assessment standards.
2: I'm committed to ensuring the district works diligently. The Broward County Public School Board approved the creation of a new behavioral threat assessment department under the Safety, Security, and Emergency Preparedness Division. I think they went from a place in threat management and threat assessment in Broward County where it was ineffective to just the opposite, and I think it's a model.
4: That was Pinellas County Sheriff Bob Galtieri and former Broward County Superintendent Vicki Cartwright talking about the program during an August commission meeting last year. What can you tell me about how these threat assessments work?
8: The goal is of these behavioral threat assessment and management teams is not to try to get a kid into the criminal, into the juvenile justice system. The goal is to understand what's going on, to assess the threat, understand what's going on in the life or lives of those that are making these threats, and then get them an intervention, get them help that they need Uh, To resolve these things. And what we've learned as a commission is that these things are hard to implement. They're, They're challenging because you've got three different entities at a minimum that have to communicate and work together and collaborate to keep our schools safe.
4: Looking ahead, what's the next thing the commission is going to focus on?
8: Well, the threats continue to evolve. The challenge is changing the way our school districts, law enforcement, mental health Professionals communicate about troubled or potentially troubled kids, uh, maybe may crying out for help, let's say, or maybe looking to attack a school, um, and getting those entities to communicate better.
4: Ryan Petty is a member of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School Public Safety Commission. His daughter, Elena Petty, was killed in the shooting five years ago. I'm Gerard Albert III in Fort Lauderdale.
0: Nearly 7 million children could lose health coverage as the COVID public health emergency unwinds and states begin redetermining Medicaid eligibility. That's according to a new report from Georgetown University's Center for Children and Families. Executive Director Joan Alker says the vast majority of kids will still be eligible for the program and could instead lose coverage due to administrative issues, like a renewal letter going to the wrong address. Alker talked with Health News Florida's Stephanie Colombini about why kids in this state are especially at risk.
6: So, in a state like Florida that doesn't cover very many adults, the largest group by far of people on Florida's Medicaid program is children. And in fact, what our new report finds is that two thirds of Florida's children are getting their health insurance through Medicaid and CHIP, which in Florida is called Healthy Kids for children whose income is a little bit higher. And the state has identified just under 2 million cases of people that they think are likely to lose coverage during this process. That's a lot of people. We don't know how many of them are children, but I'm gonna guess at least half of those are children. And what about the way Florida runs its Medicaid and CHIP programs could make it complicated for families as they're trying to renew eligibility for one or enroll in another? A lot of states just have one program for kids with one easy front door. Florida doesn't. Florida has multiple programs run by different systems and agencies. Florida also has premiums that are required to enroll in the Healthy Kids program. So there are a lot of moving parts here, and that's going to be confusing for families. And the governor and the state really need to step in. They need to make sure that there's enough staff and adequate call centers, adequate language support to ensure that families get through this process. How can the state help communicate to families, you know, you as a parent might not be eligible for Medicaid anymore, but your child could be? Yeah, that's a great question. And when messaging is being directed at parents, it's important to say your child is probably still eligible for Medicaid. That's not the messaging that we're seeing in the state. You know, when you hear about this issue, and this is true in Florida, but elsewhere too, you hear a lot about, oh, people are on the program whose income went up, and so now they're eligible for their employer coverage or the marketplace or healthy kids. Well, that's really not the case uh, for children. The vast majority of children, because the income eligibility levels are higher, are going to remain eligible for Medicaid. And so that's a key aspect of this messaging. Whereas there seems to be a tone now of, oh, wow, we've got you know, about 2 million people that we think are going to get kicked off pretty quickly. No, that's not the message we want. We want to hear, we're here to help you make sure that your child keeps their Medicaid coverage. Now, the state can do as much as it can to use electronic data, available data to make this renewal process easier. Um, But really, the state is going to have to work with children and parents where they are in the community. Child care centers, schools, pediatricians, everybody who comes into contact with children, educating them about this process that's about to start and encouraging families to update their contact information.
0: That was Joan Alker with Georgetown Center for Children and Families speaking with Stephanie Colombini. Forests store more than a quarter of the Earth's carbon dioxide and are crucial to limiting rising temperatures. But trees don't grow fast enough to compete with the amount of fossil fuels released into the atmosphere. That's the word from scientists who are learning that a surprisingly small solution could have a big impact in fighting climate change, as WUSF's Kathy Carter reports.
5: It's early morning in Bradenton, where about 100 volunteers, armed with shovels and pruning shears, kneel in about half an acre of freshly tilled soil for a community planting.
2: We're gonna clip these roots, so it'll come out of the pot. Oh yeah, we don't want big roots. All right, let's try now. I think that's gonna be great. Yeah.
5: That's Manatee County Master Gardener, Norma Casita, giving direction to a local school group. By the end of the day, these gardeners will have planted about 1,800 shrubs and trees to create a microforest at Heritage Harbor, just east of I 75. Charles Reith, with the nonprofit group Sarasota Urban Reforesters, says Japanese botanist Akira Miyawaki pioneered the technique of planting species close together so they compete for sunlight.
6: Because of the density, the canopy trees get these shade signals in early morning and late afternoon light that stimulate hormones to grow as fast as possible.
5: That means a microforest will mature in just decades instead of up to a century. Wraith, a self-described sustainability activist and a former professor at Tulane University in New Orleans, says as a result, the trees planted in Bradenton will be able to absorb high levels of carbon much sooner than a traditional forest. So the volunteers like six-year-old Ayla and her mom Jennifer will benefit quicker too.
3: All right, let's see. Do we need to put some more dirt in here? What do you think? Yeah.
4: All right, and we'll use some native soil as well. I already got a lot of that. Oh, good.
5: Microforests are becoming increasingly popular, particularly in urban areas where space is tight because they can fit pretty much anywhere. The one in Bradenton is the fifth of its kind in the Gulf Coast region. Brad Oberley, a professor of biology and environmental studies at New College of Florida, is helping organizers track the amount of carbon these microforests will eventually store. Oberly helped create a food forest planted by students at New College on just under an acre in 2015. If
4: we can understand how to make forests grow even better, we potentially have a really powerful tool to combat climate change.
5: The New College team measured their trees two years after the initial planting. And taking the soil and trees together, Oberle says in that time, the tiny food forests pull 20,000 pounds of carbon dioxide out of the air. That's equal to the amount produced by two households in a year. And double the size, and with larger trees, the microforest in Bradenton will pull even more. And that's important because carbon in the air means a warmer planet. According to the Florida Climate Center, 2022 was the 12th year in a row the state experienced above average temperatures. And another benefit of microforests is that they help reduce what's known as the urban heat effect. That's created when natural land is replaced with development.
6: These microforests create a zone, certainly under them, but extending further out than one might expect, that cools the air down considerably.
5: The most obvious ways trees cool the air is by shading. They also do it through transpiration. That happens when trees release water into the atmosphere from their leaves. As the water turns from liquid into vapor, the surrounding area is cooled. And while even proponents say microforests won't solve climate change by themselves, Reith says these hyper-local patches of nature can help, especially when they're multiplied.
6: The best way to combat climate change is to engage a lot of people and to have these kinds of forests in every neighborhood.
5: So, he says, the microforest in Bradenton should cool the air for these volunteer gardeners for many decades to come.
6: Now what should we do? Mulch. Okay, let's put some mulch on it. How does that, does it look like a happy plant now? Yeah. Okay, good job. Yay!
5: I'm Kathy Carter in Bradenton.
0: You're listening to Capital Report from WFSU Public Media. I'm Tom Flanagan. Finally, this week, a lot of rehabilitated manatees have been released in Florida this month. WMFE's Amy Green reports the releases represent a rare bright spot during an otherwise bleak time for Florida's manatees, but things may be looking up.
1: One, two.
2: Bianca was a mere calf when she was rescued in 2021 from Florida's ailing Indian River Lagoon. After a long recovery at SeaWorld, she finally swam back into the wild. She was among a record 12 manatees released in one day at Blue Spring State Park, about 35 miles north of Orlando. Cora Bircham of the Save the Manatee Club helped carry Bianca into the warm water near sunrise.
5: Opening the stretcher and seeing her, you know, slowly swim out of it and exploring the natural environment for the very first time um, here at Blue Spring. It's just amazing. It's heartwarming to see that.
2: The releases are a sign of hope as an unprecedented die-off of Florida's iconic manatees continues. Nearly 2,000 deaths were recorded statewide in 2021 and 2022, a two-year record. Conservation groups say the mortalities represent more than 20 percent of the state's population. Many of the deaths are related to ongoing water quality problems and seagrass losses that have left manatees starving in the Indian River Lagoon. Now many of the sick and injured manatees rescued during this time are ready to be released. Some rescued manatees are near death when they arrive at facilities like SeaWorld, and the recovery from starvation is much longer than for other problems like red tide. For starvation, the recovery can last months and even longer for orphan calves like Bianca who never learned basics from her mother, like finding food or warm water during the cold months. Monica Ross of the Clearwater Marine Aquarium says the releases are very rewarding.
3: It's been a very tough couple years for the field biologists being out there. We've seen a lot of things that are really sad, depressing. It's heart-wrenching.
2: The releases also come as the number of deaths this winter is down, an encouraging sign for the cold-sensitive manatees, And the wildlife agencies say the manatees in the wild appear to be in better health. That could be because of an effort to provide supplemental lettuce for starving manatees in the Indian River Lagoon, but it also could be because the die-off has reached a point where there are fewer manatees left to die. Nonetheless, there are spots in the Indian River Lagoon where the seagrass appears to be rebounding. The manatee was downlisted in 2017 from endangered to threatened. Conservation groups say the downlisting was premature and in November petitioned the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to restore the manatee's endangered status. The federal agency has until Monday to respond. Back at Blue Spring State Park, Bircham of the Save the Manatee Club says Bianca looked good. She weighed a robust 900 pounds with a round belly and shoulders.
3: Sometimes I wonder myself what
5: goes on in their heads because um, you know they've been used to being in a in a pool in rehabilitation
3: for a couple of years.
2: Bianca and the others will be monitored for about a year after their release to ensure they thrive in the wild. Sometimes orphan calves like Bianca struggle and are rescued again and returned to the wild after another short rehabilitation.
5: Hopefully, they they get to get used to being wild animals sooner than later
2: but for Bianca on that bright morning as she swam out into the spring the outlook seemed hopeful Amy Green at Blue Springs State Park
0: our regular Capital Report correspondents are Valerie Crowder Gina Jordan Lynn Hatter Regan McCarthy and Margie Menzel thanks also to Gerard Albert III Stephanie Colombini Kathy Carter and Amy Green Technical assistance for Capital Report comes from Evan Rossi and I'm Tom Flanagan. Please join us again next week for more reports from the State Capitol. Capital Report is a production of WFSU Public Media in Tallahassee.